Welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. And today we have a, a very special guest, uh, Robert Bourdon, who is an expert on negotiation and uh, conflict resolution. Bob, it's great to have you with us. Remy, it's a delight to be here and thanks for inviting me. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, together with Bob, we'll, um, we'll talk about a topic which is uh, very close to, uh, to our hearts as negotiation professors, and that is uh, what happens if we're stuck uh, with a conflict that is irreconcilable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bob, uh, but before we start with content, would you like to uh, introduce yourself uh, uh, briefly? Sure. Um, so it's a real delight to be here. And thanks again, Remy, for the invitation. Uh, so my name is Bob Bourdon. I am a senior fellow at Harvard Law School and uh, spent 21 years uh, teaching full-time at Harvard Law School. I founded the school's negotiation and mediation clinical program, uh, taught a number of classes there, including the school's uh, flagship negotiation workshop, but also classes on facilitation, um, group process and teams. And uh, since uh, mid-2019, I've been doing more of my own private practice. Um, in particular, I've been focusing on work around political polarization, um, also a topic I know we're going to talk about today, Remy, uh, which is conflict resilience. Uh, but I continue to do a fair amount of uh, both corporate trainings, government, schools, and this year I'm actually visiting um, at Georgetown Law School where I'm teaching negotiation. So um, the other very cool thing is I met Remy years ago um, at the program of negotiation at Harvard Law School. So it's just so nice to reconnect and, and be with you and all of your viewers on uh, really this amazing podcast and this, this center that you started, which uh, I hope you feel really proud of. Thank you so much, Bob. Uh, it's uh, it's absolutely honor to have you uh, have you with us. Um, and, you know, you've been uh, my role model for many years. I was uh, inspired sitting in on your courses back in the days uh, during my research visit uh, with Jess Salakius and the, the program on negotiation. And uh, um, I'm also um, a, um, a follower of your YouTube channel, which I will I will share the link to which I will share in in our chat here so that uh, our listeners and viewers can uh, can watch it uh, uh, in, in which you share your insights and views on various topics. Yeah, this has been such a treat for me. You know, um, it's only this YouTube channel is only 13 months old. One of my former students actually persuaded me to do this. I confess this is not an original idea. Um, and he very kindly urged me on He's mentored me, he's helped produce the videos, but now it's become a real joy for me. Um, there are three videos that come out every week on different topics related to conflict and polarization and negotiation and mediation, and some are current events and some are a little bit more maybe academic or general in nature. Uh, but yeah, I, I welcome your viewers to subscribe and take a look. Thanks, thanks for uh, letting me plug it. And uh, I hope it'll be a useful project in the long run. Oh, yes, absolutely. A big shout out to our listeners and viewers, uh, guys. Uh, um, I'll share, I've shared the link in our, on our um, Facebook, YouTube and uh, LinkedIn channel. And uh, we'll gladly also add in the comments uh, on, uh, on all these channels. Uh, uh, one of the recent videos, Bob, uh, which uh, you, I think, published a few days, uh, a few days ago, um, you tackled the topic of polarization. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the theses theses that uh, that that you mentioned at the beginning is that um, 
the world has become more polarized, pol polarized than it had been before. Yeah? Um, what is the basis? Uh, you know, how do you how do you arrive at this conclusion? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of research on political polarization. Um, I do not profess to be an expert in this area. Um, however, um, the research that has happened over the past decade has shown um, increasing levels of political polarization, I, certainly within the United States, and I think you're probably right to say, Remy, more broadly. Um, I think one of the other important things is, is to say, though, is that there is, I think, a perception that we are more polarized than we are. Um, there certainly is, you know, some of these, I think, uh, kind of very highlighted little pieces of research, for example, that um, it is now the case that in the United States, people would rather see their uh, child marry someone of a different religion than of the opposite political party. I mean, this is something that I think would have been unheard of, um, you know, even 20, 25 years ago. Um, we certainly see this, I think, in the media landscape. We see it in um, just the sense of um, uh, the way uh, people kind of curate these kind of cocoons of comfort um, where they're not challenged. Um, we see it even in the U.S. in terms of demographics, in terms of of, of moving patterns, um, that there are, are areas and regions of the country that are becoming more homogenous. So there are, in fact, fewer contested races. Now, that is partially a product of political gerrymandering in the U.S., but it is also partially a product is that people are choosing to move and live near people that are more like them politically. Yes, that's um, um, that's um, that's worrying. Yes, and in the in the world where sort of our our views on fundamentally important topics um, diverge, yeah? what does polarization mean? Well, well, we move towards the poles, which means away from each other, right? Uh, we try to preach as negotiation professors and conflict uh, resolution um, uh, academics. Uh, uh, we try to preach the problem solving. Uh, attitude and approach. Yes. Uh, do you think? Do you think that uh, we are overemphasizing our abilities to resolve polarized uh, zones, or is there something else that we need to teach our students? You know how to deal with such situations. Yeah. This is such a great question, Remy. You know, um, in the at least in the legal academy, I would say in the United States, um, beginning really, I would say in the '90s, one of the ways in which uh, or by which ADR and especially negotiation, but broadly ADR classes, um, got a foothold into U.S. legal curricula, was by focusing on this idea of the lawyer as problem solver. And in fact, we also saw this in shifts in graduate education, like uh, in schools of public policy or in business schools. But in the law context, right, it was instead of just doing doctrinal teaching, we're going to teach you how to problem solve. And I should be really clear. Um, I am a big, big proponent of negotiation as a problem solving toolkit. The, the kind of basics of our field that kind of say that when we look at issues that seem like they're zero sum, but then really, um, if we actually have the skill and the knowledge, we can see that they're actually 
lots of integrating opportunities, lots of possibilities to create value. And I think we need to teach that um, to our young people, to students, and to just beyond that, right? Executives, government officials. At the same time, you know, your your point is one that um, is something that really relates to polarization in some way, which is that the purpose of engagement with the other um, can't be and shouldn't be simply limited to problem solving. Um, that is to say that there are some issues where we are likely to see at least the core of it fundamentally differently. Um, and even when we see the core of it fundamentally differently, we have to have some capacity to engage with those differences in an open, transparent way and with good listening um, and do that because there are other benefits that come from that, which might not be just the resolution or solving of the problem. And so mm -hmm. in that sense, Remy, I guess that's where I worry that if we're only teaching, you engage the other when you think you have a chance of solving the problem, otherwise don't bother, um, then I think we have missed something very important. That's 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 uh, that's a very deep thought. And while preparing for our conversation, I was thinking, you know, how do we recognize this moment? Yes, how do we recognize that we are stuck in a situation which is irreconcilable? Yes, uh, because typically after a negotiation or conflict resolution class, uh, we develop, hey, there's a nail, here's the hammer. Yeah, there's a conflict, let's apply our problem solving skills. Right. Uh, so um, I was uh, I was thinking before our chat, how do we recognize the moment in which we or up to which we need to try to resolve and from from which we need to try to develop other tools and methods of dealing with irreconcilable differences? Yeah, no, I think this is a, a really important challenge, right, which is to say that I mean, I think we have a number of challenges facing us in the societal moment. Um, and, and, and there are things that we as negotiation scholars and practitioners um, have been in some sense talking about all along. So this idea of what, you know, what we would call a focal bias error, which is the tendency to over-focus on the area of difference and miss all the shared value, right? Um, and I think in many of the, really in many of the, um, big societal issues facing us right now, there's actually a lot more shared views than different, whether we look in the US context of immigration, right? Or uh, abortion or climate change um, or, you know, gun control. Um, there are actually a fair amount that is shared um, that but the, the current climate right, never lets us have a conversation about those things. Uh, and this is polarization. Now, the question you're asking, though, is what happens? I mean, at some level, there are just going to be profound, irreconcilable differences. Um, someone is going to believe that those two cells are a human life. Yes. And somebody else is going to say, no, they're not. And or. I don't know if they are or they are not, but that decision should be up to an individual woman, not to the state. Um, and it's probably unlikely that there's going to be a meeting of the minds on that. 
people may agree that immigration is a problem in the United States, but are unlikely to agree on some of the proposed solutions. And so, you know, I think your question is, well, what tools do we have? Um, and I think some of the tools are very much in, in the negotiator's toolkit. Really good listening. Uh, really good and effective assertion. Assertion about one's viewpoints that is done in a way to maximize the chance that you could it can land with the other side. But I think something that I have seen um, that is, I think, in lower and lower supply in, the, in, in our culture and our society uh, is something that um, I term conflict resilience. And this is something that I'm writing about, right? Which is, which is the kind of capacity, um, the will and the capacity to be in the presence of those with whom we have these strong differences to actually do the listening and the speaking and to sit with the discomfort that doesn't allow for it to be wrapped up in a bow at the end or to have two takeaways or three joint prop, three joint things we're going to do together next week. And um, in the kind of my experience has been um, and I feel like this is something that I've seen in growing in growing over the past I would say five to 10 years, is that our capacity and willingness to be conflict resilient has been reduced. And it's been reduced for all the reasons you might imagine, right? The fact that people who are listening to this right now and are disagreeing can just end, right? We can, you know, if I produce a YouTube video that someone doesn't like, they'll just unsubscribe for me. I can unfriend someone. I can watch the cable news of my choice, right? I surround myself with the people who, with whom I disagree, uh, with whom I agree. And then I'm highly avoidant of the touchstone kind of um, emotionally triggering conversation points with those that I can't get rid of, right? So like at the holiday, you know, feast with my crazy uncle, um, I'm going to make sure that I spend time talking about how good the cranberry sauce is and not who he voted for three weeks ago in the midterms. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a loss to me and also a danger for us as a society, for families. Um, and so conflict resilience to me, this capacity seems like a really important leadership skill um, that is fast fading away in ways that I think pose serious dangers. And I think mm -hmm. they pose dangers, right? Because the less we are in touch with each other, the easier it is for me to turn you into a cartoon character, um, a unidimensional kind of ridiculous avatar of my worst nightmare. Yes. Um, so I probably overspoke, but those are my thoughts. No, absolutely not. It was a delight to listen to, uh, to your view on conflict uh, resilience. Um, when, when we compare the concept of conflict resilience with a little bit older conflict on, uh, concept of conflict management. Yes, what key differences do you see um, between them? What is uh, one and is uh, not the other, and vice versa? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a fair amount of of overlap. I would say, um, to me, conflict management um, is 
I would say a bit more organizational. Um, a bit, I think it still has as a part of it um, the notion or idea that there are at least some kind of solutions that are put in place. Um, resilience, conflict resilience, I think is um, a very internal and individual thing. Um, one could become savvy in conflict management, but one doesn't become conflict management. One does become conflict resilient. Um, I believe, right, that an organization could have good conflict management practices, but the organization doesn't become conflict management, but an organization can become conflict resilient. So I think they are, there's an overlap. There's certainly, in terms of some of the behavioral skills, we would see some similar, a lot of crossover for sure. Um, but the resilient piece, I think, is something that's kind of more internal, if that makes sense. Oh yes, it makes perfect sense. Uh, um, so if we if we if if, if we look a little bit uh, closer at uh, conflict resilience, uh, I was wondering, you know, um, would you have an example, you know, of um, either people or instances in which those people demonstrated um, uh, conflict resilience as a practical um, practical terms of dealing with their conflict situation yeah so as i love this question um it's going to give me you always like a question that gives you a chance to talk about something or people that you really love and admire right uh so so i'm going to give you you know as i was kind of developing this idea um which is a, kind of a few years old now i'm still writing about it i'm actually writing a book on this with uh, someone who's actually a, a brain scientist a neuroscientist at nyu But, uh, but in the early days, I would say maybe when I first kind of came up with this particular name, um, I, I had like out of these two, I would say, divergent experiences that um, one where I saw a lot of conflict resilience and the other where I did not, uh, both involving young people. But the example of the uh, one where I really did is I, I do a lot of work with an organization called Seeds of Peace. So this is an organization that was started in 1993 um, at, a, at a moment at the time of great hope around the possibility for peace in, between Israel and Palestine. Um, some of your, some of your uh, more dated listeners like me <laughs> will remember the Oslo Accords. Some of your younger listeners will not remember that. Our viewers will not remember that. But, uh, but this was a moment where it, it seemed like there was a pathway and possible framework toward an actual peace between Israel and Palestine. And this organization called Seeds of Peace started um, where they would bring um, about 150 Israeli young leaders and 150 Palestinian young leaders every summer to a camp up in the state of Maine in the United States um, for three weeks where they would have several hours of facilitated dialogue um, each day And around issues of the conflict, not facilitated dialogue on what do you think about climate change or facilitated dialogue, right? But uh, their core issues. And then the rest of the time was, uh, uh, you know, summer camp. And, and uh, this, this program, this camp has actually grown and continued. There's a lot of programming uh, now in the region. Um, we've since started a US-based program, a program in India, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. But when I look at these young people, right, I think, you know, uh, these Israeli and Palestinians, um, they are coming 
together to talk about what is for them really existential issues, right? Of life or death across their enemy. Um, it is typically not the case that at the end, either side has in any meaningful way shifted their views on the issues. Um, but it is very often the case that they have shifted their views on the story they tell about the other person and the other people. And when I kind of watch, and I've become very involved in this program, I've done some um, work with this organization in the Middle East, and I see the way that these um, young people are absolutely non-avoidant. Um, they struggle to listen well, and they struggle actually to assert in a way that's productive, but they stick with it. Um, they forge through um, with lots of emotion and discomfort and anxiety and often disapproval of family. Um, that to me is an example of conflict resilience. And what has come over, you know, um, now nearly 30 years of this work, obviously, and, and sadly, right, what we have not seen is a resolution to that particular conflict. In fact, it's gotten worse. Um, but what there are countless examples of um, collaboration between these individuals, friendships, and at times saved lives, right? Because an Israeli, for example, might end up uh, becoming a soldier and is in a situation where something is escalating with Palestinians. And because of that experience can intervene in a way that de-escalates the conflict. Um, and so to me, right, those are examples of conflict resilience. Yes, uh, thank you for sharing these, Bob. Uh, I was, uh, this would probably suggest that uh, conflict resilience is learnable. Is that also your experience? Would you share this view? I absolutely believe it's learnable. Uh, I believe that, um, uh, and in fact, in some sense, I think in an earlier day, it was absolutely necessary to get by day to day, right? Because if you lived in a geographically bounded place, um, and your whole life was geographically bounded and people in your community and your family had differences, you developed a capacity to hash it out. I mean, and in some ways that is kind of what we see in these early Palestinian contexts, right? I think what has happened is um, because of some of the trends we were talking about earlier, um, the brilliance and wonderfulness of social media, right? The, the fact that I can, if I'm interested in a particular subspecies of bumblebee, can connect with the other 15 people in the world who, for whom that's their passion, right? That's a great thing. What it means though is I can also shut off even the things around me that I don't like or don't agree with, right? And then I think we have developed like in our kind of educational structures, um, I think we've confused creating a climate that is conducive to learning and low risk enough for learning, which is absolutely essential because I don't want to get misheard here, but we've confused that with creating an environment where no one ever has to feel the least bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think that is really problematic. But so yes. I do believe this is learnable. I think that um, it's also teachable. 
And I think we have to teach it in a way that maybe we used to not have to teach it because you were just forced into it, if that makes any sense. Oh, yes, makes perfect sense. So you've, uh, <clears throat> you've mentioned uh, about your uh, work with um, Israeli and pa uh, Palestinian uh, young leaders. So it seems that age might be one of the factors that contribute to towards um, building quicker or stronger conflict resilience. Yeah? Are there any other systemic or maybe individual factors that uh, foster um, the development of conflict resilience for individuals or groups? What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, I don't, I would say that the vector, I mean, age is a vector, perhaps. Um, I think necessity, frankly, is one. <laughs> I think, uh, Uh, I think there are like uh, cultural differences that make this harder or easier, um, which are not like, uh, but just, um, you know, I do work in faith, different kinds of faith communities, right? And I would say that um, faith communities where if, the, if, if there is open and notorious conflict, it means someone was bad which I don't think is the case at all, right? But if that's the cultural norm, it's just going to be harder to see there than in an environment where maybe you grew up in a, you know, whatever, a big ginormous family where people kind of were tussling about more. Um, and so, um, so I think there's a lot of like systemic and cultural factors um, in terms of like, what do you know? I mean, where do we hit the set point in our educational system? Uh, on the range of completely unfettered debate where you don't have to like be thoughtful at all, which I think is actually not education, but just on one extreme, to um, if you color out of the line the least bit, you're voted off the island. Um, and so educational, um, you know, I think institutions and even classroom environments um, often kind of can set up the norms about how do we bring out these differences and how do we then kind of sit with the discomfort? I think the other thing I would just say, Remy, is I think there's personality differences. I suspect, you know, some of your um, viewers and listeners are aware of the TKI assessment, right? The Thomas Kilman instrument. And we know that people have different tendencies to either be more competitive or to be more avoidant or to be more relational. So there's a lot of things factoring in. Um, The same could be said for teaching negotiation, yeah. right? Um, is that each of us has probably some set of kind of natural skills, but the more we know about a topic, the more we know about negotiation, the more we practice in a reflective way um, and learn, and then the more we learn about the field, we're going to improve from wherever our natural set point is. Yes. Yes, exactly. So we start just like with any other skill. It seems that also with conflict resilience, uh, um, there are individual uh, differences in terms of where we start, but we can all get better at different pace uh, and different pace uh, depending on the kind of uh, what kind of experience we generate along the way in terms of training uh, for the development of uh, towards uh, of that skill. Yeah, I, I was thinking about uh, while preparing. <clears throat> Bob, while preparing um, our for our chat, I was thinking also about stress, mm. yes? uh, because typically conflict situations um, produce or generate physiological reactions, which uh, in the long term 
are devastating for our uh, for our bodies. Yeah? And I was thinking, you know, whether uh, what role does conflict conflict resilience play in terms of in terms of uh, counteraction towards uh, towards those reactions? Can we learn to reduce stress of a continuous conflict uh, of being in a continuous conflict situation? Um, uh, what do you think, Bob? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like these are probably good. This is probably a really good question for my co-author on my book. Uh, uh, so hopefully he's not watching this and I'm not going to ruin the answer. Uh, but, but here's here, my thought on this, right, is that um, becoming more conflict resilient will actually have a positive effect on stress. That is its extent. I can imagine someone making the other argument. Well, if you're completely avoidant all the time, you have no stress. Except for the fact that I actually think that um, this is less, you know, this is not scientific. This is just my own experience in terms of, as a practitioner, how many clients come to me, not because they're in the throes of a conflict, but because they feel alienated or distant want to find a way to reconnect or to rejoin um, but don't know how to do it without taking the conflict head on so in fact they're still experiencing all the negative aspects they're just not experiencing the conflict um but my own feeling right is that part of this is if we have some coping mechanisms um so uh so for example Matt Lieberman at UCLA, right, has done research in what he calls affective labeling. Um, so if we are, when we actually are able to name to ourselves the feelings that we're feeling, it actually reduces the period of time when we're seeing the physiological response. It changes the signaling from the amygdala, which is the emotional, to the frontal lobe, which is more of a kind of rational conscious. So um, I think that there is a way in which becoming more conflict resilient um, can actually have some good health benefits, right? The other thing that, lest, lest um, I be misheard by any, anyone listening, um, conflict resilience does not mean like always and forevermore throwing yourself fully into every single conflict all the time because you're conflict resilient. No, you know, but it is like a tool or a skill set or a capacity you want to have in your repertoire, like emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. or like good listening, right? Or like the ability to, I don't know, be successful in framing issues. Yes. Yes. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Bob, for sharing this. Um, <clears throat> I was also thinking about uh, conflict management professionals, right? Because uh, conflict resilience is, uh, might be super hard to develop on our own, uh, right? What role do conflict management professionals play in protracted, irreconcilable um, conflict situations? Yeah. Can they help us develop or become more resilient towards the conflict? Is that the role? I think that is definitely one of the roles that a conflict management professional can play. Um, So if I think of a facilitator, um, uh, part of their job is to create conditions that enable people to speak and enable people to listen. And 
that means having a conflict resilience themselves um, and also a real ability to bring that out by creating at least a low risk container or space to kind of hold that conflict. Um, in fact, you know, when I was first um, kind of noodling around this idea, um, I had an experience that made me really realize how important it was, right? So this was doing some training work with some young people around facilitation, around difficult topics. And um, after, I, I would say, a very substantial amount of training, some of these facilitators had a, a chance to actually work with groups that had really opposing views on some hot button issues. And to my horror, what I saw was that as soon as there was kind of contention in the room, the facilitator would step in and kind of bring the group back to something that felt more shared. I'm sympathetic with that instinct, right? Because it's really uncomfortable. And yet that to me was the moment to actually highlight the difference. Not to say, oh, it sounds like we all agree. Peace is good, or we like the environment, right? Or, you know, uh, but rather to say, ah, so I, what I heard you say is climate change is a natural phenomenon. And I heard you say that you think it's caused by humans. You don't sound like you're on the same page. Say more, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think that's a role that conflict management professionals can play and should play. Uh, I think one of the challenges arguably, right, is that sometimes, at least for some of us, some of the reasons why we went into this field is that we found it both fascinating and interesting and complex and maybe we weren't so like feeling great about it ourselves, right? Like, um, and so I, I think there's been an evolution for me as well that, um, I mean, I think my, there's still an attraction for me, right? The idea of, well, we want to, you know, eliminate conflict. But the more I do this work, the more I realize that's a kind of a ridiculous statement. In fact, if there's two sentient people with views, they're gonna have some conflict. So what we really need to be doing is finding ways to sit with it, handle it. When we can problem solve it, problem solve it. When it gets managed, it gets managed. And sometimes it's just there and we're gonna have to find some way to work with each other, even though we will never see eye to eye on this. And in fact, it makes me quite angry that you feel that way. Mm -hmm. Bob, thank you so much for sharing uh, sharing your insights on this super fascinating topic of uh, conflict resilience. Uh, um, I so much I'm so much looking forward to uh, to the release of your book. And uh, that makes uh, two of us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely have to do uh, another another episode once uh, once this book uh, the release has been uh, scheduled. Uh, my last question is always to all my uh, to all my guests um, always refers to great negotiators. Okay. Um, be it historical, uh, historically, or temporary or contemporary, um, when you hear when you hear the description, great negotiators, who do you think about? Yeah, Oof, this is always a it's a tough question for me. Not not because I can't come up with somebody, but because I always worry about coming up with a person. 
Um, and in fact, on my on my YouTube channel, my producers, the last time I did a recording, they said, oh, we want you to do, um, we want you to do something on a great negotiator. Uh, and I was like, you know, that's very nice. Uh, I don't want to do that. What I will be willing to do is start a series uh, where I occasionally do one on a great negotiator. In fact, the first person I picked uh, was um, somebody who is a was a mentor to me, someone who I admire enormously, the late Roger Fisher, um, who wrote Getting DS and was one of the founders of the program on negotiation. Um, so he's somebody I would name. Um, I, I think in a few weeks or very soon, um, there's going to be another one coming out on uh, former U.S. trade representative, Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, um, who I think of as a really great negotiator. Um, so just to kind of use those two, because I think they have an overlap of uh, really fine attributes and some differences. I mean, I think they're both really good at perspective taking. They both really stress preparation as so critically important, um, uh, both substantive and process wise. Um, I think that perhaps a difference, right, is um, or you know, Roger was somebody who was very focused on that at the table interaction. Um, the listening, the giving the other side a really good role. Um, and I think Ambassador Barshevsky is, is good at those as well. And it's also really good at thinking at who, how do you get the right parties to the table, speaking about the right issues in the right order. Um, and so there's a statesmanship, a statesmanship or uh, a crafting capacity. Uh, but there's lots of people. I mean, I, it feels weird even choosing those two. Um, but since I know one video is coming and one's out there, I'm going to choose those two. And um, uh, and, and hopefully over time, right, I, I'm really interested in this idea of how do we make lists um, of people who bring really good, strong attributes to the table. And I'll be definitely sharing those videos with uh, with our listeners and viewers, uh, or links to those videos, uh, because uh, this is this is a topic which um, which is very also very close to my heart, and I'm uh, so much looking forward to uh, your take on uh, great negotiators. Um, let me join Maxime and many other guests in uh, thanking you for uh, for this session, uh, Bob. It's been uh, great uh, to uh, reconnect with you and to listen about your about your take on on conflict resilience as a concept and. Uh, and the impact that it can have on on protracted conflict situations. Uh, uh, Bob, it's been great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Uh, and until next time on program on program, on the podcast on negotiation. It's been a great honor to be here, Rami. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for just producing this really terrific series. It's a real real gift to our field and to anyone who takes the time to listen. So thank you. Thank you, Bob. Uh, thank you to our listeners and viewers. And until the next time on the podcast on negotiation. Thank you so much.